Welcome to Independence, the FIEC podcast. My name's Phil Topham, Executive Director of the FIEC, and it's time for our regular dive into the news stories that have been dominating our headlines in recent days. And with me is a man who is bronzed from his holiday in France, our National Director, John Stevens. Good morning, John. Hi, Phil. And a woman who is not bronzed at all because she lives in Scotland, Rachel Sloan, our Director for Women's <laughs> Ministry. Good morning, Rachel. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yes, yeah, I'm enjoying the yeah lack of sunshine today. And yeah, well, there, there we are. It was inferred, wasn't it? A- excellent. Well, um, John, Rachel, there's been so much going on uh, in the news uh, this week. We want to uh, talk a bit about your holiday a bit later on, John, because there's some really interesting insights about what you picked up about the gospel and uh, the history of Christianity uh, in France. Um, but before we do that, let's talk about a story that's been dominating the headlines here this week. Uh, and that was uh, the Sun newspaper... Uh, a report came out about a week ago, an unnamed BBC television presenter um, who they said had been um, paying for explicit uh, photographs from a young person. And then for several days, the uh, the media uh, rumour mill went into overdrive. Who could this uh, person be? It's then revealed um, that it is uh, Hugh Edwards, BBC News presenter, uh, at the point when uh, the police say there's, there's no legal uh, case for Hugh Edwards to answer here. Uh, it sounds like it then becomes an internal matter for the BBC but Hugh Edwards' name is linked to this story and it's just been multifaceted and quite difficult to get our heads around. And I think my question first of all is, how do we respond to this kind of link and uh, of headlines that go on over many days? How should we respond to it? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, at one level, this is a mix of experiences here, isn't it? The, the, the whole story as it's unfolded has been very difficult to get your head around, to know exactly what the truth is, what the circumstances are. So it's been a very changing story. So um, the initial claims that were made, um, that the fact that the uh, kind of young person involved then denied that anything had happened, not knowing who it was, all of the speculation online. Um, uh, so I, I think it's very difficult to know what you can really believe in the media, what is really true. It's a reminder to us that on the outside, we never know the full story. We don't know exactly what's happening. We're only being told partial facts. We don't really know the full story even now because the investigation hasn't been conducted. I think it was obviously shocking when it was Hugh Edwards' name was um, uh, announced. I think um, whether it's illegal conduct or not, the idea that a 61-year-old of that profile has been kind of uh, sort of engaging on dating sites with very young people, um, multiple claims of having been harassing in kind of texts and messages that have been received. That is shocking. But as Christians, we know the wickedness of the human heart. At one level, it is shocking, but we've seen things in Christian circles that reveal to us that people who you might think are well-known, are a kind of um, older statesman, have been shown to have behaved appallingly. So at one level, as Christians, we're not shocked um, at one level because we know the wickedness of the human heart. We are deeply saddened. Um, It's hard not to feel immense sympathy for his wife and family um, and the way that they've been betrayed. He's got five children and you you just can't imagine what it must be like for them to be discovering that this is what their father has been doing. And as is very often the case, in the end, the story becomes the cover up rather than the thing itself. 
So the comments that are being made are that complaints have been made to the BBC in the past. There have been secret investigations of claims. There have been claims from BBC staff. So actually, the, 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 the issue that will evolve from this is not just this particular behaviour, but the whole way in which the BBC has handled allegations, whether it's conducted an appropriate and proper investigation. And again, we've seen in multiple Christian contexts, it's crucially important that where serious allegations are made, that they are properly investigated, properly dealt with and not covered over. I mean, this this very week, um, sole survivor Mike Pilavachi has resigned from sole survivor. Um, uh, kind of um, uh, Matt Redmond has made claims about having brought abuse to the attention of trustees in the past, but it wasn't dealt with. So that's, that's, that's exactly the same situation happening within Christian circles. So it's another reminder to us of the vital importance of having proper processes that deal with um, allegations of abuse and misbehaviour that are raised. Rachel, what do you make of the fact that there is a kind of big age disparity here? And it, it seems to me, at least looking in from the outside, that there are just different approaches that different generations have to these kind of matters. So for these younger people, this is deeply distressing to them in a way that perhaps an older generation doesn't quite understand in the same way. Is, is that a fair comment or am I, am I overreaching? Yeah, I mean, I guess I think that probably is. Um, I guess it shows a little bit of our culture's understanding of just morality i guess and you know like john said as christians we understand that there is something um at the heart of all of us that means that as much as we look at hugh edward's story we know that we might not behave in exactly the same way as him but the tendency to to be selfish to seek after our own desires and pleasures is all there but i think we're seeing the effect of as we move further away from christianity and our culture we also almost are sh shocked that people could behave in such a way anymore. And I think that's what we're seeing to a degree with us, you know, some of the younger generation, actually. Um, there is a surprise that people can behave in this way, where actually for maybe an older generation or for those of us who are Christians, we know this is how people can behave as sad as it is, as horrible it is, it, as it is where, you know, again, as we've said, we don't know the full details of everything that's happened, but we know that there's been something that has going to have a profound impact on him, on the, his children and his wife, on the young people involved. And you think actually we shouldn't, yeah, are we holding people to a higher standard than actually is you know realistic i think mm -hmm. i think phil just one thing that might Go be on. worth saying it seems to me that one of the things that's changed rightly and helpfully in culture is a recognition of kind of imbalances of power in relationships mm. and that you know older men having relationships with very much younger women that's happened throughout history um, some have sought to sort of almost celebrate that, the kind of Silvio Berlusconi kind of um, person. But I think rightly in our culture, it's been more and more recognised that that is, in a sense, an abuse, a misuse of power, that even if there might be formal legal consent, actually, there, there isn't a, a kind of a, a real ability to enter into a relationship. There's an exploitative element involved in that. Mm. Here it's somebody in their, their late 50s, early 60s with people who are teenagers. Um, and, I, and I think rightly, our culture has um, sort of recognised that that is a, 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 an inappropriate way of behaving that cannot be tolerated and accepted. And I think the, the widespread uh, public reaction 
um, towards um, kind of the disclosure that it's Hugh Edwards kind of reveals that sort of public attitudes have changed. This can no longer be laughed off as just kind of sort of male behaviour and, and what you expect. And again, from a Christian perspective, I think we ought to welcome that. That is that is absolutely right. Um, the Bible warns us about these exploitative relationships. You kind of think of David and Bathsheba. And it's it's right that that is probably, properly recognised for what it is and not excused. And it, it's a reminder to us that standards are not simply about what is legal. It's not enough to simply say mm. there's not illegality. Um, actually, this is a, a sort of a misuse of power. It's probably a contravention of employment codes that are, that are in place. It's not a bad thing that we have become much more sensitive to people's misbehaviour and the way that they mistreat other people and that they, they misuse the imbalance of power. But what about Hugh Edwards' right to privacy that's been talked about? Is there anything in, in that, Rachel, that we should be paying attention to? I don't know. I guess the question is when someone is married as well, whose privacy and whose rights are the most important here um, in that sense? So actually we're, we're holding him to a standard because this isn't a, just a private matter between two consenting adults, um, which has no impact on anyone else. You know, as we've raised, he has a wife, he has children. And so how we expect, again, even with changes in our culture, people to behave in those relationships does make a difference. Um, I think it's interesting as well how people have reacted to it, particularly being Hugh Edwards and the kind of persona that he has, the kind of role that he's played in our kind of public life, particularly in recent years with the announcements and things that he's made. If it was a kind of lesser known BBC presenter, would we have reacted in the same kind of shock? And I guess it shows as well just the kind of the two faces that people have. Um, and I guess that does impact whether, you know, the yeah public private life does matter, doesn't it? That actually how someone behaves and is perceived in public does, doesn't mean that they can do whatever they want in private, I think. I think it's been really interesting as we've looked at the news this week about where we get our news from and who we trust and who we look to. So I think as a former journalist, let me declare an interest. And I, I can imagine how the, you know, the, the meetings went in the newsrooms about this story. And it seems to me the reason Hugh Edwards wasn't named at the beginning was because actually the Sun didn't have a watertight story. Mm. I think they flew a kite and I think they knew that it would come out in the wash because pressure would be put on. And I think that's a lesson to us as Christians. We've got to be careful which sources we listen to. And people are out for themselves. So it's worth saying, and I don't think this is controversial, uh, many of the tabloid newspapers and the broadsheets actually don't like the BBC. They get funding from the licence fee. They don't have to um, sell their advertising. Uh, and that annoys some of the, the, the privately owned companies. So they'll do anything they can to skewer the BBC. And um, so I think that's really interesting. You know, what, what, mm. what was the motive for The Sun in, in, in bringing this story to light? Um, I, I would suggest, yes, it's good that these kind of things are brought into the light. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But I do think it's interesting that The Sun haven't done this because they've got, you know, um, the, the thoughts of, of his family at heart or the thoughts of the young person at heart what they're basically wanting to do is skewer the bbc and i think we just got to be honest about that that's what our society's like isn't it yeah i think you're right um and i think it does then impact how we pass judgment on this story as well um, how we talk about it as christians um and how we talk about those involved because it is 
more complex than the media would like us to believe, isn't it? And um, it reflects on us as well, because we are more complicated. And we know, again, that as Christians, don't we? And so there's that element of, you know, like you said, we want things to come out in the open. We don't want um, ungodly behavior or this misuse of power to be hidden away. But also we mustn't be those who are quick to pass judgment because we understand the complexities of people's motives and our own hearts behind it all. I think they felt there's a warning of the danger of misusing scandals politically um, uh, and actually where they occur in groups that we might disagree with or might not like using that um, as a means of attacking those those groups. Um, and again, we can see that easily in Christian circles There's a scandal in a particular kind of church or a denomination or a group. And it's easy for others outside who have disagreements with that group to sort of point to that and think, use that as a way of seeking to undermine them. Um, I think a classic example there is many of the child abuse scandals initially were within the Roman Catholic mm. Church. And there was a sort of a arrogance on the part of evangelicals thinking that's them, it couldn't happen to us. And then you discover very similar scandals happening within um, uh, sort of our own constituency or near constituencies. Um, and at that point, there's, there's a reminder of the, the, the reality is that we can't use these scandals for political reasons. We must remember that there are victims here who have been hurt. We, we must remember there are people whose reputations are being questioned that need to have proper investigations so that they can be rightly and properly protected. Um, and I think um, we, we need to be very cautious then in terms of what we say and what conclusions we um, draw um, and not, not to use these in a, in a political way to simply advance um, uh, our own kind of causes or indeed operating a sort of a kind of schadenfreude that is grateful that it's somebody that we disagree with in which this has, has happened mm. and has damaged mm. them. I think those are both unchristian motives. John, is there any lessons for church leaders on where they should get their sources of news? Should we be like listening to a range of different voices? What, what would you advise church leaders? Well, I think um, absolutely. I mean, a range of different voices rather than just one. I think for that more generally, um, all media outlets have an agenda. They all have a political kind of bias. And actually, if you only read those who come from your particular perspective, um, actually, it will simply reinforce all of your convictions and the way that you, you view the world. Um, I think be particularly cautious of social media um, as a vehicle for uh, kind of information. So I think it's about sort of, in a sense, interrogating what are the biases that people might have. Actually, that's no different from reading a range of commentaries um, uh, on kind of the Bible. Um, the different commentators will come from their particular theological conviction or ecclesiological conviction. You've got to be wise to that. So a breadth of kind of receiving information is, is hugely important. So personally, um, I read at least three different newspapers. Um, I read them because I want to have a range of different perspectives. I'm very struck by the way the same story can be covered completely differently mm. by different papers putting different spins on them. And I personally find it's helpful to be hearing the different voices. Even when I, I might disagree with them, it helps me to realize there is a multiplicity of, of perspectives that are there. So I, th I think that's just really helpful to do. I think the other thing that's crucial is not to rush to judgment. In our instant culture, um, people are often expecting us to reach an immediate judgment on, on, on partial information, to have an opinion and to express it. Uh, sometimes we just need to hang back and say, there's not enough known at this point to actually make any kind of real judgments. You have to wait until a fuller story comes out. So I think for Christian leaders, again, 
be very careful before jumping to conclusions on only kind of partial um, uh, information. Biggest, the full story will often come out, but you have to wait for it to do so. And we don't want to be embarrassed by having made comments on partial information that turns out not to have been the whole picture. Rachel, do you find as um, a worker in our church, in a church at Charlotte Chapel, as well as serving with FYC, it's kind of a is it is a gossipy culture? Does that is that still come through in church life? Because um, that's what this has been. So what, what, well, I mean, yeah. that's what that's what this has been, really, hasn't it? It's just been it's been kind of gossip mongering from start to, yeah. to where, where we got yeah. to. Is that is that still an issue in churches? Have we have we moved past that? I'm, I'm just curious to know what you what you think. I mean, I'd hope in some ways we have, but we also have to be realistic that actually, that again, it's just another aspect of our sinful nature that comes out. And I guess what we're seeing is, as John said, isn't it? The warnings that we have against that, because it's very easy to hear something, want to pass it on, hear something, make a judgment, but realize, you know, two, three weeks down the line, you hadn't had the full facts of the story. And so what you said, about that person has now been passed on and passed on, but actually it was a very different situation. So I think whether it's still there in our churches or not, it actually just reminds us that we need to be behaving differently, don't we? That actually these are not the behaviours that we'd want for followers of Christ. That whenever we hear something, we want to follow the due process, don't we? Because we want our story to come out in the open in a way that calls the perpetrators to repentance and gives support to those who've been hurt um, and lifts them up because actually most of the time when we're about gossip it's to make us feel better to look good we become the focus don't we not the person who's been hurt in the story um, and even if something's been done against us the reason why we pass on gossip is, is still to make ourselves look better isn't it and the other person to look bad um and so that's just a real kind of danger that we need to be careful of, that we are not behaving like the world in this area. Let's move on. Um, thank you for your, your comments on that one. J John, you've, you've just come back from France and France has been in the news a lot this last couple of weeks that the riots that have taken place there over the shooting of a teenager by a policeman in France. I mean, obviously, that was all happening while you were over there. Just give us a perspective from the other side uh, of the channel. What, how, how did that look? Did, did you come across any of that? Did you see any of that where, where you were? Or was it all happening in completely different places? Honestly, it was happening in completely different places. We were in fairly kind of um, remote holiday um, environments and, and, and you weren't aware that, that that was happening. There was nothing in the particular towns that, that we were in. Obviously, I mean, it was a big news story in France at the time that very tragically, a kind of Arab background teenager was kind of shot by a policeman when driving away when he didn't stop. Um, and that led to um, a kind of rioting. Um, I, I think actually, again, sort of revealing a depth of problem in France, um, particularly over the, the immigrant community and the way that they um, have, have lived lives that are really very separate from um, mainstream French culture, often in kind of ghettoized communities in, in the cities, but also just an immense amount of frustration on the part of young people anyway. It was interesting that the curfew was largely aimed at people who are kind of aged around 16 to 18 or thereabouts. So there's an awful lot of uh, kind of dissatisfaction amongst um, a younger 
kind of generation. So France, in that sense, is dealing with um, many of the same problems that many um, sort of Western countries are dealing with. How do you adjust to a much more ethnically and culturally diverse community? How do you deal with um, issues of great inequality between different groups? Um, how do you police appropriately in a way that means that people have confidence in the police and the dangers of a kind of a abuse of police? At one level, it's not massively different from some of the challenges that have been revealed in the recent report into the Metropolitan Police. Interestingly, I remember coming back from a holiday in France. It was probably about six or seven years ago, maybe longer than that. And actually, we came back to news reports of race riots all across kind of um, England. And there was kind of mm. mass rioting in London and other places. Um, and I think that means to say we shouldn't think this is a uniquely French problem. This is a challenge of many societies as to how, how to um, uh, kind of cope with um, kind of diversity and inequality and how people feel that they have a right and sort of just stake in the in the life of society. In some ways, that's kind of the sorts of issues that we're going to be talking about in our FIEC Leaders Conference. We're going to be thinking about the whole issue of justice and what that looks like um, in society. And, and this kind of event highlights some of the challenges that societies are having to wrestle with and you, the Bible would say the church is the place in which we're meant to be practicing justice, where we're accepting, where we're treating each other um, kind of equally and fairly, where we're overcoming kind of um, inequalities. So um, actually what the church ought to be doing both internally in relation to the world um, is exactly touching on these kinds of issues. And John, before um, so I bring Rachel in, just give us a bit of a flavour of kind of the Christian picture in France. So you picked up some interesting things about kind of church history, um, I think, when you were away. It's just worth picking up on that and then we'll, we'll, we'll comment on it together. Yeah, we were in the kind of Dordogne for the second week, um, which um, actually is an area which was very strongly Protestant. I think the thing that um, I'm constantly reminded of is the way that the, the Reformation um, had a massive impact in France in the 16th and the 17th century. There was a, a sort of a, a, a large number of um, kind of reformed um, uh, Christians in France. It's important to remember John Calvin, though he ministered in Geneva, he was actually um, uh, kind of French. Um, La Rochelle was the sort of the, the centre of, of the kind of Huguenots. Um, um, uh, after a kind of period of time, they were granted tolerance under the Edict of Nantes. Um, a couple of towns that we were in, we were in uh, kind of next to Bergerac, there was um, a Protestant temple um, that, that had a long history um, in the centre of Bergerac. Interestingly, the Protestants called their churches temples to distinguish them from Catholic uh, kind of churches. And we were in, visited a little town called um, Imat, which again had a, um, a Protestant temple uh, kind of in it. And I, I was really struck by just reading its history because this was a church that had been built um, after the Reformation when French Protestants had been granted toleration. Um, uh, the toleration was then withdrawn by Louis XIV, who established a kind of an absolute Catholic monarchy. And this temple had been demolished. And at that time, most of the Huguenots, many of the Protestants were forced to flee France. Um, uh, and then interestingly, it was after the, after the French Revolution that toleration was granted again. And this temple was rebuilt after the French Revolution. That was really interesting to me that kind of the, the revolution, which I think lots of Christians see as being somehow anti-Christian, actually introduced or renewed tolerance, which enabled this Protestant church to be kind of rebuilt. So interestingly, the kind of the Catholic um, absolutist regime persecuted Christians, whereas um, the, the more secular um, kind of post uh, revolution regime 
granted a tolerance which enabled the church to be uh, kind of um, rebuilt. And actually, interestingly, um, uh, in kind of recent, the last kind of um, 100 years or so, there's been a remarkable growth of evangelicalism and Protestantism in France. It's actually really encouraging. It's thought that at the moment, the growth rate in France of evangelicals is about 2.4% a year. Um, it's estimated that a new church is planted, evangelical church is planted in France every 10 days. There has been remarkable uh, kind of growth. And again, in Bergerac, where we were, there was an, a, an evangelical church right next door to the supermarket that we were shopping in. So it was just encouraging to see the gospel returned. Um, and from my connections with the European Leadership Forum and knowing a number of kind of French um, evangelical leaders, it, it's wonderfully encouraging that the gospel is growing um, in that country. Rachel, just could you comment for us on on tolerance versus equality? So often when we talk about liberal progressivism, we can look at it from two angles. We can look at it from the angle of complete equality, which is often persecuting of Christians. But if we look at it from the angle of tolerance, we actually do see that it can be a very useful tool for the gospel because actually we see people with different views living in tolerance with each other. Am I overreaching or is that is that a fair comment? I mean, I think that's what we want. And I think we want it in the, dare I say, it, the real um, meaning of tolerance, which I don't think is what our culture understands tolerance to be anymore. So we have equated tolerance to you believe what I believe or the majority view or the popular view. And if you're not agreeing or affirming my belief, then you're not tolerant. But actually, the, the, the picture of tolerance that we want is people of different views, different backgrounds living together in a way that respects and understands um, their difference, um, allows for different of opinion um, and seeks to understand where the other person comes from. Um, I think again today it's very much, let me tell you why you should agree with me. Mm. Um, we don't really want to find out why someone else believes something different, especially when we think it's more, uh, an even stronger kind of opposite to us. So we have, very, you know, when someone, the stronger someone's opinions are on why the other person is wrong, the harder we find to actually kind of take time to find out where they've come from, what their views are, why they believe that way. Um, mm. We're much quicker to kind of decry them and label them in a certain way. So, yeah, I think, and I think that's when as Christians, we probably should be trying to, yeah, paint a different picture, tell a different story and say, well, actually as Christians, we, can come alongside those who believe something that we know is, dare I say, wrong and untrue, but we will respect them. We will endeavor to find out why they are shaped in that way. And actually we can still live and work alongside those who believe things that are very different to our worldview rather than this kind of angry, entrenched, I'm gonna stay with my crowd and my camp um, and ignore everyone else who doesn't agree with me, which is what we seem to be getting more and more of, isn't it? Something we've been tolerating um, over recent weeks has been the Ashes series. Uh, I think it depends if you're into cricket or not. So I say that to offer balance. Um, I think um, we, we can all get a bit swept up uh, with with, a, with the sporting calendar sometimes because it, it dominates the headlines. But we've uh, we've had three Ashes tests and, and England have managed to win one, John, which is extraordinary. Um, so uh, well let's talk, can, can we talk first of all about this concept of baseball? Here's my take on it as not a particular cricket fan. My take on it is, it's a bit entertaining, but you lose most of the time. Welcome to Bowsball. Is that the future of cricket, John? 
I think that's kind of a bit, a bit simplistic because, I mean, actually... Of course it is. I, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> trying to poke the beast. Come on. Last, last summer when we were playing, um, actually we won both test series playing in a baseball manner. I mean, the heart of baseball is basically enjoy playing the game and go out in an aggressive attacking way. And so I think just that, slog it for four and six. That's the point. Well, not, not, exclu- not just that, but actually enjoy the way you're playing and have confidence in the way you're doing it. And I think actually um, when um, England had lost the last Ashes series, when they were struggling, they actually needed that sort of, I think, enthusiasm and joy in the game in order to be able to play well. Um, actually, that's not unlike in Christian ministry. If Christian ministry is just a slog and we don't have joy and we're not enjoying doing what we're doing, we're actually not going to do it very well. So at the heart of baseball is kind of you've got skills, go out there and enjoy the game and enjoy playing it and um, kind of be willing to give it a go in order to be able to uh, kind of um, succeed. Now, I think what's interesting about the kind of the Ashes series is that in the first couple of games, that was tried in a pure form. But test match cricket is basically different from kind of um, one day cricket, T20 cricket, the 100. Um, it, it, it involves kind of different skills because of the kind of rules about field placings. The bowlers are able to bowl faster and in a more sustained way. So that, sorry, that, so there's a need to adjust to the context. So what's interesting about, I think, England's victory in the third test is they carried much of the spirit of baseball, but actually played more carefully and more cautiously. And sort of that was appropriate for the context of the kind of cricket that they were playing. So but I think this Rachel, balance... Go on, go on, John. There's a balance, balance between... You've got to enjoy playing, um, got to be positive in playing, but also have got to adjust to what's appropriate for the particular context um, uh, of the game you're playing. Well, that leads me really nicely into what I was going to ask Rachel about this, because as a non-cricket fan, but this is really interesting, I think, that after the tests that England lost... There was basically a narrative of, oh, oh, we lost, but, you know, we're still great at cricket, aren't we? Kind of thing. And I think as a, as a sports fan, that I found that a bit frustrating. We, we lost the, the, we lost the matches. We lost the tests. But is there a sense in which, Rachel, sometimes we can, we can put a positive spin on things, which, which really there needs to be a bit more realism about. And I think we can do that in all sorts of disciplines. It can relate to church life. It can relate to our, our, our private lives. We put a, we put a positive spin on something that really, we shouldn't put a positive spin on. And I think that's the key thing is, um, what is it we're putting a positive spin on? Is it something just not going the way that we wanted it to? Or is it sin? And I guess if it's something that didn't quite go the way that we want, then sometimes it's not a bad thing to reframe it because actually we can get you know, various contexts, a lot more disappointed, despondent, discontent, because life is not going the way that we want it. And so we need to reframe our thinking around it, don't we? We need to actually remind ourselves of the bigger picture. So there's a degree to which in sport, it's not a bad thing to be like, well, do you know what? We actually did play well. And that was just a better team. So at the end of the day, it's not the end of the world that we didn't win as much as that's what we'd love. But it's not the end of the world. While actually, if there's something that is sin, reframing that in a positive way is not is never helpful, is it? And actually, and and you're right as well. There's other contexts where being realistic about expectations of life is also really important. Like I think we can expect to life to be positive and easy all the time when it's not. Sometimes life's just hard, and we just have to remember that. But I think it is important that we're careful what we're talking about when we're trying to re-spin something, isn't it? Indeed. 
Josh. So I say, Phil, I think actually the first two tests, um, England actually, they were quite close in the end. England yeah, but played- they didn't win. It's like, this, I, this, I know, is, this is like Bolton's manager. You know, it, it's, it's fun to watch, but we're not winning. It's like, it's, it's, it's reminded me of but that. But this is, again, the heart of the problem of sport for those who are not at the top level, isn't it? That actually there's an element of, we can just enjoy it. We can just play the game. Yeah, but yeah. we can play the game and enjoy it, and that is good. That is just as good as getting the the first place. Because for those of us like me who are never ever going to be first place in anything, <laughs> learning to enjoy it is good. <laughs> I think Phil, um, in, in sport, somebody's got to win. Um, there'll always be a winner. Actually, the assumption that we ought to win is is in that, that sort of context. I think it's just fundamentally wrong. It's the same yeah, with England football. Is. Every World Cup, we think we should win. But actually, we're only one nation of 70-odd million people. There are better footballing nations in the world. Why are we surprised that those that are better don't, don't kind of beat us? That assumption of winning and that that's what it about is, is about, I think... Those first two tests, England played remarkably well. It wasn't a collapse. It wasn't a failure. Um, it was pretty pretty close. And I think that kind of playing the game well, but being beaten by a team that plays better on the day, there's there's, there's no shame in that. Um, yeah. uh, and I think we need we need to recognise that. Interestingly, the controversy over the Bearstow stumping he was in the out. second text, uh, <laughs> kind of, but that highlighted this difference between losing fairly and a feeling of here is somebody who's exploited the rules in a way that's outside of the spirit of the game which kind of sours it um uh, interesting i read a kind of a gospel coalition blog post this week which was called uh, urging christians in the conflicts in the culture that it is important to lose well where we're a minority mm-hmm. we may be fighting against a whole variety of things but actually, the most important thing is the way we conduct ourselves. Yes, we make our case. But actually, if in the culture we lose because we're a minority and we haven't convinced, uh, 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 at one level, what's most important is that we lose well rather than mm. that we kind of lose badly. And I, I think that's a really important principle. Um, you know, we know that ultimately, from a gospel perspective, God wins in the end. But read the Bible and time and time again, God's people suffer setbacks and failures in a in a hostile world. But it's so important that we uh, kind of conduct ourselves well. If one can take the cricketing analogy that we behave in the spirit of the gospel at all times. And actually, um, if we lose, actually losing well is itself a witness to a wider watching world that can have long term impact. I mean, the Bodyline tour is still remembered almost a century afterwards because of the apparent failure of fair play that, that was going on there. Um, and I think as Christians, we mustn't behave in ways that are so motivated by winning that we compromise the way that we do things. Mm. It comes back to Francis Schaeffer. We're to do the Lord's work, but we must do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Mm. And sometimes that means in the here and now, we lose in the immediate moment. Um, God wins in the end. But actually losing in the Lord's way is better than winning in the world's way from a Christian perspective. That is a really helpful a, place to yeah. finish, I think. Sorry, Rachel, right. we, time has beaten us, I'm afraid. That's uh, but all we, right. <laughs> we, will talk, we will talk again in this conversation and we'll continue, no doubt. This has been uh, the FIC podcast, Independence. Do rate, leave a review so others can find it uh, and we'll talk to you uh, again very soon. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, John. Fascinating uh, conversations uh, and enjoy uh, the coming summer weeks. God bless.